ancient mythology of the Greco-Roman world, gods and goddesses like Zeus, Poseidon, and Artemis were notoriously hard to please. The fickle deities of their pantheon were known for their mercurial plotting against mere mortals. It was impossible to know if the gods were for you or against you. These so-called gods were thought to be temperamental and capricious. Their attention was often as dangerous as their anger. These gods are immoral, not trustworthy. They have no loyalty with little concern for mortal man. Christians utterly rejected all the traditional gods of the Roman world. As the early Christians looked at the rampant polytheism in their culture, they simply called it idolatry. Their loyalty was to the one true God, the Father of their Lord Jesus Christ. And for that loyalty, they were called the destroyers of the gods. This unique, world-changing loyalty was on full display in the year 156, when Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John, was martyred because he refused to swear allegiance to anyone other than Christ. When he was offered mercy if he would only recant, he famously said, For 86 years I have served him, and he never did me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp's loyalty, the steadfastness of all Christians, is found across scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Chesed is that word that describes a person's commitment to the people in significant relationship with himself or herself. That's the voice of Old Testament guru Daniel Block. He's a prolific writer, commentator, and scholar. And after 50 years of preaching and teaching around the world, we are honored to have him as a regular guest lecturer in our Doctor of Ministry program at TMS. Dr. Block says that you can't talk about Yahweh without talking about Hesed. He calls it the workhorse attribute of God. Chesed at base, commitment to the people in one's significant relationships, and demonstrating that commitment in acts in the interest of the other person. On that count, it overlaps significantly with the word for love, or have, which is to demonstrate covenant commitment in actions in the interest of the other person without reference to oneself. My fierce, relentless, fastidious Hebrew professor in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrick, defined Hesed as commitment and affection. He said the best way to translate the word in English is loyal love. Here again is Dr. Block. I mean, all the way back, King James, thy loving kindness is 
better than life. Well, loving kindness, that's love and kindness. Or nowadays translations go with faithful love. That is a very legitimate translation of the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is all those wonderful attributes of God that drive him to act in our interest and on our account it drives us to act out of loyalty to God and with his interests in mind. In the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with his people Israel. He promises to provide for them, to love them, to protect them, and bless them. Hesed is the outworking of that covenant commitment. Hesed is covenant commitment in action. Hesed is loyalty, and loyalty is a defining attribute of God. So to be loyal is to be like God. If you're a pastor or you aspire to be one, you must be loyal. Allegiance is first to God and then to his people. So what does loyalty look like? How do you practice hesed? How do you respond when there's a lack of loyalty in the church? What do you do when its leaders are disloyal? We're going to answer those questions in this bonus episode. And as we explore this crucial quality, we're going to fulfill a promise we made in the eighth and final episode of season one. We're going to dive deeper into arguably the greatest crisis of John MacArthur's ministry, a day in 1979 we call Black Tuesday, when several members of the pastoral staff betrayed John, tried to split the church, and some wondered if his ministry would survive the coup. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. And this is a bonus episode from Season 1, The Expositor, The Life and Preaching of John MacArthur. Before we talk about loyalty and revisit those events of 1979, I have a caveat, a public service announcement. You don't even think to call me Godfather. You said you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder. Money. This isn't some kind of mafia loyalty we're talking about. That's blind loyalty to a corporation, a system, or a man. The type of loyalty we're talking about is not some less violent, Christianized version of do as I say or there will be consequences. Only don't tell me you're innocent. Because it insults my intelligence. It makes me very angry. Pastors should never demand blind loyalty. Allegiance regardless of conviction or behavior That's what the mob requires. That's not what John MacArthur or any faithful pastor should expect. In fact, when pastors talk about loyalty, they aren't actually talking about themselves. 
You have to be loyal, loyal to the truth. And that means you're not divisive, right? Because the Word of God desires unity and love. And secondly, you have to be loyal to the church. Loyal to the truth written and incarnate, you could say. Loyalty to the Word of God, loyalty to the head of the church, Christ himself. It's never loyalty to me. I, I, I would never ask that of, of anyone because that's not, that's not the right kind of loyalty. Lo- loyalty to a person is only valid as long as that person is faithful to the Lord. Consequently, it's irrelevant to be loyal to the person because you're really being loyal to the truth, to the Lord and to his church. Okay, that's the end of our PSA. Now let's go back to the fall of 1979. Uh, You have to understand what was happening back then that is so different from today. Welcome Chris Mueller to the podcast. When I think of the 70s and 80s at Grace Community Church, I think of Chris Mueller. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary and the senior pastor of Faith Bible Church in scenic Marietta, California. A few weeks ago, I called him and we talked about what was going on at Grace in 1979, the year that Chris joined the pastoral staff. The uh, new worship center had opened in 1978, the year before, and Grace Church again blew up uh, to be packed and huge. It was during the time of the Jesus movement. People were hungry, starving for the Word of God. John and several other well-known guys in the Southern California area, you know, had churches that were just busting at the seams. And there was a lot going on. John had written, I think at this time, maybe three books. And the radio was just beginning to become significant. And there was a lot of draw on John, a lot of pull from people inside and outside the church. Chris was the junior high pastor. John had invited him to join the church staff after the two had met at Hume Lake Camp in Northern California. Chris was young in his early 20s when he became one of the first outside hires at the church. Grace Church, up until, you know, this time, 1979, they had never, ever hired anybody on the outside. It had always been on the inside, part of the church, someone in the church family. And what they did is they hired uh, Clayton Herb, and they kind of got around that by saying, well, Clayton's not a pastor, he's just a worship leader, blah, blah, blah. And then they hired me, and I was young and dumb enough, uh, 22. I was nuts enough to do junior high. I was running the junior high camp at Hume Lake. And so they brought me in, and I didn't realize even how how tense that was. So here's Mueller, this young pastor, just 22 years old, and his new job is in the middle of a war zone. When Chris came to Grace Church, he had no idea that a few of his fellow pastors were unhappy with MacArthur. They didn't have the same access to John as they once had. Opportunities to preach were fewer and far between. They had pockets of followers at the church, and they dreamed of leaving with them to start another church in the area. Bottom line, they didn't like all the changes. The growth of the church and MacArthur's expanding influence. And they decided to do something about it at that Tuesday staff meeting. 
that when I made the statement, I'm so I said this. Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful to have you guys as my friends. To which an immediate response came: If you think we're your friends, you got another thing coming. I'll never forget that. And I was totally stunned. The debate uh, was was very um, personal. Uh, the co- confrontation was very personal. Uh, there were accusations uh, about John and statements that John had made off the cuff that were brought to the surface. It was very unbiblical, and uh, it was very unkind, and it was uh, it was it, it was planned. I mean, they they knew exactly what they were doing, and that was massively obvious. They had gotten together and figured out what they were going to do, and they went after John. And it was like, you know, he he answered carefully and graciously, and then finally said, "No, we're done. We're not. We're we're not. We're not. We're not having this discussion. This meeting's over." You can't understand the mutiny without understanding its context the growth of the church and of John's profile, the sense among the other pastors that they were losing influence and prominence. MacArthur's star was rising, and these usurpers felt left behind. I I wasn't consciously trying to leave anybody out. I don't consciously even now try to leave anybody out. I I hope I still welcome uh, the the dialogue that I, I desperately need. But, but I think it was a combination of disappointment and um, some jealousy that came together. There was envy and jealousy, and instead of talking with John or working that through with him, there was a talk amongst themselves about, you know, what are we going to do? And, and you began to draw a conclusion. There's a little bit of whispering, a little bit of gossiping, uh, a little bit of, uh, well, you know, John doesn't care about this or John doesn't care about, you know, presumption was a big deal. And um, again, instead of trying to say, hey, let's hammer it out, let's work it out, let's get the time to do that, you know, get a time to way to kind of figure out how we can work better as a team as things are changing and adjusting, it was like, well, we're, we're going to want to do what we want to do. Eventually, this conflict would spill over into an elders meeting. One of the elders at the time was Dr. Irv Busnitz, an original faculty member at the Master's Seminary who served as vice president for nearly two decades. I've always had, intentionally, unintentionally, I've always been the last one to know, and that's been good. I love it, in fact. So I just, I just exist, I'm fine. I didn't know a lot about it when it was going on even. I didn't know a lot about it. I think part of it was brought on by the fact that in the early years of John's ministry, He had a very inclusive group around him to discuss, what should I preach? He didn't didn't ask for their input anymore. He preached too long. He he expended his his 45-minute sermons to an hour so he'd have enough for two sessions on the radio. Things like that were uh, accusations that were directed toward him. And the conflict among the leadership didn't go unnoticed by the rank and file at Grace Church. I'm a guy who's who's involved in the church, and I don't know what all exactly is going on. I don't know about this Black Tuesday meeting. I, I don't know anything about it. But you knew something was going on because you'd hear people talk. That's Bruce Blakey, 
Today, he's a pastor at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach. Before that, he pastored in San Antonio, Texas for many years. But back in 1979, he was a student at the University of Southern California. He was in the golf team and he had just come to faith in Christ and had joined Grace Church. He remembers John's magnetic personality and how everyone was eager to hear him teach the Word of God. Everybody was super excited about the teaching. I mean, I can remember a couple months in, uh, we're there at church on a Sunday morning and uh, MacArthur gets up to preach and he starts a two-week special series on true commitment. Taking a break from the study of the book of Acts, true commitment. And I remember my roommate elbowing me and saying, oh, this is going to be good. In those days, everybody's sitting on their edge of their seat, writing notes down as fast as they can. And then they went out and told everybody else and, and brought more people in. I had a 66 Dodge station wagon and we would fill it up with college students and go out there every weekend and go to the morning service, the evening service. Uh, we, we were there all the time. Bruce also remembers the unprecedented excitement around the church in those days. There was a lot of change, constant growth, and a sense that anything was possible. Grace was the place. The church was doubling in size every two years there in the early and mid-70s. It was just exploding. We were meeting in the gym and three services on a Sunday morning. And it was like Shepherd's Conference every Sunday. You lined up outside, just like you were at the at the Shepherd's Conference. And uh, when the service was over, the, the group that was in there somehow got sucked out and the next group got sucked in. And people were running for seats and jockeying for position and, and all that. And if you were late, if you were late, you had to wait until uh, the choir was done singing and then you got ushered up into the choir loft, which taught you never to be late again. And in the midst of all the growth and excitement of 1979, after all of this tumult, on the very last Sunday of the year, John MacArthur preaches an incredibly bold sermon series. And MacArthur preached a series of sermons called How to Destroy Grace Church, which looking back now, I think was him kind of dealing with what, what had happened. For a time... We're going to, to just set aside our study of Matthew and Daniel because there are some things I feel I need to say. I guess it's kind of like family meeting time at Grace Church. There are just some things that we need to say, some things we need to, to deal with, some concerns in my heart. I can't carry my burdens alone. When things are on my heart and they stay on my heart, I feel like I need to share them with you so that you can carry them with me and together we can see God glorified. That's the opening salvo of John MacArthur's first sermon in this impromptu four-part series that he provocatively entitled, How to Destroy Grace Church. If Grace Church is to be destroyed, it'll be destroyed by the people who are Grace Church. The enemy is us. Amid the excitement, growth, and effective ministry that members like Bruce Blakey were experiencing, it was no doubt stunning for the congregation to hear John MacArthur say the following. 
On February 9th of this year, I will have been in Grace Church. Oh, that will be my 11th anniversary, and I'll start the 12th year. If I faced the onslaughts of Satan that I face now in this church, when I first came here, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't be ready for those then. But I can tell you after 11 years of being here that I have never seen Satan work as hard as he's worked in the last six months in this church. Never. And I thank God that we've seen victory. And I thank God that we're going ahead and growing and God is blessing in a wonderful way. But at the same time, I have never been more aware of Satan. In the last couple of weeks, it's, it seemed to me like there was a literal pall over this place. It seemed to me Satan was working so hard overtime. Again and again in these sermons, John would return to this theme, that Grace Church, seemingly thriving, was actually facing intense opposition. The greater the influence for God, the stiffer the opposition. I've never felt it in my life like I felt it in the last couple of months. Just amazing the way Satan is pressuring us. And so many little things, you see, incidents here and incidents there. And as you begin to put them together, it's a wholesale assault. You know, nothing would make Satan happier than to see Grace Church just kind of fade. And what did MacArthur say was the greatest threat to Grace Church? What was this satanic onslaught? And one thing I know Satan would love to do, and we have worked on this and struggled with this through the years, is to put the wrong people in leadership. Satan can do the most damage by corrupting the leadership. Is that right? When one of the members runs off with somebody, the church doesn't suffer as much as when the pastor does. When one who is a leader in a church falls into moral evil, it is devastating on the church. Devastating. That's Satan's primary work to corrupt the leadership. And so not only does Satan want to infiltrate it with unqualified people, people who don't live up to the standards, people who don't really fit the office, though they could be wonderfully effective in other areas, but he wants to destroy the ones that are there. Not long ago, I asked John what he remembers about those four sermons, especially in light of all that was going on at the church. I don't know if you planned on four, but it became four. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, two weeks in a row, to wrap up 1979 and to start 1980 with how to destroy Grace Church, which I get nervous every time I Google that, that the IT department will think I'm up to something. It's a great and provocative sermon title, and they are what the Spanish call muy picante sermons. And then you, you really strongly speak to the fragile unity in the moment because my understanding is, is these guys are trying to tear the church apart. So what do you remember about that decision, about those sermons, about how to destroy Grace Church? In the general sense, what I did there is always my approach, to go to the pulpit, go to the Word of God, and address something without naming names, without identifying people, but not so oblique that nobody knows what I'm talking about because everybody at some level gets it. And the people who don't know anything see how important it is to maintain unity and what does destroy the church. The, the people who are a part of the problem get it be, and they know they've been confronted by the word of God, but, but they've also at the same time been protected because they're not exposed. Because there were men of integrity on the elder board who saw the opposition for what it was, 
John MacArthur survived the coup. I remember saying to him, John, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it was just my way of trying to say, hey, you know, I'm here for you. Uh, over the years, people have said, you know, what about this, John? What about that, John? And I continually tell them, I, I'm here to help John. I'm there to support him. A few years later, John faced more opposition. And after nearly a quarter century at Grace Church, he again wasn't sure his ministry would survive. Another occasion, a few years later, a number of years later, it was his 25th anniversary, maybe, probably 25th anniversary, and the church gave him a trip to, to visit the missionaries. And so to New Zealand, Australia, India, when he met Mother Teresa and so on. It was all of the part of that. And we had a big reception for them, and uh, we they had a reception line to congratulate John and Patricia. And I came by, my wife and I came by John, and John just mentioned to me, I hope there's a church to come back to. <laughs> And I, I was a bit taken back. And again, I, I just said to him, you just go and enjoy yourself because it will be here. It will be here. You don't need to concern. But I knew that he was carrying a weight. In Dr. Busnitz's answer, we start to see why John MacArthur survived the opposition. He had co-laborers in the gospel and when he had invested in these men, they saw through the self-interest that could have torn the church apart. Their loyalty was not just to Pastor John, but to furthering the gospel in unity, and they loved the church just like MacArthur did. They were committed to one another in mutual trust and loyalty. I just want to encourage people. I want to support them, love them, give them resources, give them finances, give them opportunity. Uh, challenge them and help them to to do whatever they can do and make sure they have all the help from me that they can get to, to work it out. So I, I think it's important to understand that if you just, if your star rises and you take all the credit and then you dominate all the details and dominate the organization, you will kill your ministry. You will kill it. People can't take that. They have to see you as one who gives them opportunity to be everything they can be. Here's Chris Mueller describing how John MacArthur has done that over the past 40 years. John uh, always had uh, words of encouragement, and uh, he would multiple times, you know, uh, at key points in your life or when you, or you had a question or where you were concerned. I remember I used to talk to him about my seminary education and he would guide me as to, you know, what was important, what was not. I would come in sometimes after Hebrew and uh, in tears going, I can't get this. This language is evil. And he would give me encouragement, challenge me, kick my butt, 
in a wonderful way uh, to uh, keep me going and motivated me. And then, you know, as uh, ministry continued, he took a specific interest in me. He asked me to take him to LAB where his boys were playing football. And so he, as a man of faith and courage, got into my 72 exploding Pinto and I drove him to LAB, and while we were in there, he goes, look, Chris, I, I want you to know, if you have any questions uh, about anything, ministry, life, whatever, marriage, you can talk to me. Uh, you, you can ask me anything. And honestly, that moment began 40 years of investment. When John invests in men like Chris, he's mainly helping them grow into the man and leader that God has called them to be. John doesn't want to go around making mini MacArthur's. He wants his co-laborers to be like Christ. And his desire is to support the ministry that God has entrusted to each of them. Very early in my ministry, I used an illustration uh, from when St. Paul's Cathedral was being built in London. And there was a guy from the London Times interviewing these stonemasons who were stacking stones. And he said to the first guy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm putting this stone here, can't you see? The second guy doing the same thing said, I'm earning a living for my family. The third guy said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. I mean, that's perspective. And for me, I'm the third guy. I'm. You cannot motivate people by the work. You have to motivate them by the cause. The cause has to always be transcendent. In the conflict of 1979, some of the leaders at Grace Church became too focused on the work, on John's job, on his position. They forgot that all of them were working for the same cause. God had uniquely gifted MacArthur to lead through preaching, and he had gifted the team to lead in other ways. To thrive in leadership and to survive the usurpers, a leader has to understand the diversity of gifting in the church. He has to do everything to remind the team of the cause they're fighting for, and he has to support them as they pursue God's unique calling in their lives. If he acts like he and his job are all that matters, he's going to face opposition, and he probably won't survive it. And that's what pastoring is. It's not, it's not pushing people into a mold that you've already determined it's providing them all the love, all the encouragement, all the financial resources, all the opportunities that you can possibly provide so that they can flourish in ministry. That kind of investment produces love, and love cultivates loyalty. And loyalty is what a pastor must have if he's going to survive challenging times men like Irv and Chris, and many others throughout the years, saw their role as complementary to John's, not in competition, but because they understood what God had called them to, and they were eager to support one another in times of crisis. Leading with love is essential in pastoral ministry. And if you want to be an effective, loving leader, you must trust God 
and trust the people he's placed around you. You can't control them. You have to believe the best of them. So the only thing you want to do when you go into a church with your leaders is you want to instruct them in biblical doctrine and biblical truth. That's your job. And um, the, the worst thing you can do is start to fix them by trying to control everyone. I mean, that's, this is suicide. I mean, you can't do that. Trying to move people around and change structure. This church, when I came, had, I think, six boards. And I didn't want to dissolve any of those because that was identity for those people. All I wanted to do was teach them the Word of God, sound doctrine, and let the Bible inform them, direct them, lead them, and, and they would come to the right conclusions, which they did. Here's Bruce Blakey talking about how John MacArthur helped him learn to trust others and trust God. He kept his focus on the things that he can do, he needs to do, and that's what uh, I think, I think that's been helpful for me. Uh, you know, I can't control everything, I just need to take care of my responsibilities. And then you trust the Lord for whatever's going to happen. Of course, that kind of trust is not without risk, as MacArthur learned on Black Tuesday. It led to him being blindsided during that staff meeting. But not trusting anyone has a far worse outcome. I was devastated on that day when the staff uh, coup d'etat was kind of revealed because I didn't understand it. I... I felt like I was close to those guys. I felt like um, I had strong relationships with them. I felt like they were genuinely my friends. And I think what stunned me was that I didn't see that coming. Because I, I tend to be very trusting. I don't know if people would, would assume that because I'm strong on things. But when it comes to people, I tend to be very trusting with people. And um, you, you have to convince me of people doing harm because I'm not going to assume that at the front end of things. And I think I've said that to guys through the years. The first time it happens to you, you're going to be surprised because you tend to believe the best. But after it happens to you once... There are certain characteristics of that kind of uh, mutiny, that kind of uh, division that reaches that kind of level that you'll, you'll pick up faster the next time around. Um, but, but the first time, it's going to be a shock because um, you, you tend to be trusting. And that's very important. You can't, you can't shepherd people if you're suspicious. You, you can't... You can't be second-guessing everyone's statements, everyone's commitment. That's not good for your heart. That's not good for your soul. That's not good for your ministry. That's not good for your relationships. As you love people and invest in them, supporting them in their God-given ministry, you are cultivating a loyalty that you must have in times of crisis. And rest assured, crises will come. Jesus guaranteed it. In John 15, 20, 
he tells his disciples to remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. At this point, I wanted Paul Twist to read a portion of J.C. Ryle's profound commentary on this passage, but he unexpectedly quit slash retired after episode 8, citing an aversion to the fame directed at him thanks to his tonal work on this podcast. So, in his place, we've enlisted someone who embraces the fame. Jeremy Vuolo, a D-list celebrity who also happens to be a producer on this podcast. Persecution is the cup of which Christ himself drank, faultless as he was in everything, yet never was anyone so hated as Jesus was to the last day of his earthly ministry. Scribes and high priests, Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews and Gentiles, poured contempt on him and opposed him, and never rested till he was put to death. This simple fact should sustain our spirits and prevent our being cast down by the hatred of man. Let us consider that we are only walking in our master's footsteps and sharing our master's portion. Do we deserve to be better treated? Are we better than he? Let us fight against these murmuring thoughts. Let us drink quietly the cup which our Father gives us. Above all, let us often call to mind the saying, Remember the word that I spoke to you. The servant is not greater than his master. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll keep working on that. But make sure you follow him on the Instagram. At the end of my conversation with Dr. Buznitz, who you would never find on Instagram, I asked him what he would say to any TMS alumni and other pastors facing opposition at their church. Listen to what he said. First of all, I guess I would probably say, welcome to the club. People so often think that, well, you know, MacArthur, he's got this plush job. You know, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000 Sunday mornings. You know, everything is just hunky-dory. And, and it's not. He fights the same battles, maybe on a, on a level much higher than they uh, so I think it's encouraging for alumni to know that uh, working, living, serving at, at a large church is that its problems just like serving at a small church does. Uh, stay the course. Stay the course. So I think there's, there's uh, just encouragement in knowing that other people walk the same path as you do. What do I deserve? I mean, they, they, they crucified Jesus. You know, they, the churches gave Paul problems. So what, what, what would I expect? Something different? Um, I mean, it's just part of it. You have to hold it lightly in your hand. And you, you, you can't take things that disappoint you personally. That's how you get burnout. Burnout doesn't come from hard work. It comes from unrealistic expectations and feeling like people are hurting you and harming you. And you've got to get over that because that's the nature of the animal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I was offended. It doesn't matter that somebody was critical. It doesn't matter. In the big scheme of things, all that matters is that I'm faithful. 
None of the other stuff matters. So you, you can't get caught up in that. You, you, you can't live with an uh, overblown sense of your own importance. Uh, you, you'll be successful as long as you're faithful to the Lord and he'll protect you as long as you're worth protecting. Cultivate loyalty by loving and trusting the people around you. And don't be surprised when someone betrays that loyalty. It's going to happen. There will be opposition. And when it comes, you pray for reconciliation. You hope that what happened at Grace Church will happen to you and your ministry. And from what I understand, all of those guys have come back and at one point or another and asked for forgiveness. So that's a good thing. Since those days, they have all come back to yeah. acknowledge that they wronged him and yeah. that they needed his forgiveness. Personally, those relationships were later restored as they came back to me. More than 40 years later, there is no malice between John MacArthur and the men who confronted him on Black Tuesday. Forgiveness has been asked for, and it has been granted. John often says that time and truth go hand in hand. Time has shown John the fruits of faithful love and covenant loyalty between a pastor and his people. And truth has pointed those who oppose John to the need for reconciliation. Hesed, covenant loyalty. It's beautiful. It's biblical. It truly is the workhorse attribute of God and of the ministry he calls his people to. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode from season one of the MacArthur Center podcast. We are working hard on season two and we'll have, well, Corey and I are, and we'll have more updates in coming weeks. Stay tuned for those. The MacArthur Center podcast is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Alex Johnson provides invaluable editing help, and Cody Signore continues to piece these episodes together in an extraordinary way. Special thanks to Chris, Rockin' the 80s Mueller, Bruce, No Bogies Blakey, and the revered Dr. Boosnitz. All faithful men, all deeply loyal to Christ and His Word. For more information about the MacArthur Center for expository preaching, go to MacArthurCenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, visit tms.edu.